Gastroenterology and Nutrition Podcast. I'm Judy Sondheimer. In this session, we will abstract selected articles from the May 2010 issue of JPGN. A complete table of contents and access to the complete articles in this issue are available on the JPGN website, jpgn.org, or on our Society website at naspgha.n.org. The first article I will mention is a case report entitled Exchange Transfusion as a Possible Therapy for Neonatal Hemochromatosis by Escalano Marguerite and colleagues from Grenada, Spain. This podcast doesn't usually headline case reports, but this short report describing a neonate thought to have neonatal hemochromatosis who was apparently successfully treated with neonatal exchange transfusion is an instructive one, made more so by an excellent companion editorial entitled Neonatal Hemochromatosis and Exchange Transfusion, Treating the Disorder as an Alloimmune Disease by Nicastro and Iorio, which succinctly summarizes current thinking about the pathophysiology of this rare disorder and thoughts as to why exchange transfusion might be effective therapy. The first original GI article is entitled Immune suppression by cyclosporin A inhibits phytohemagglutinin-induced precocious gut maturation in suckling rats by Prikhodko and colleagues. Objectives. Enteral exposure to the lectin, phytohemagglutinin, provokes precocious gut maturation in suckling rats, coinciding with an early expansion of intestinal mucosal T and B lymphocytes. In this paper, the role of the immune system in neonatal gut growth and maturation was further studied. Materials and methods. The effects of immunosuppression by cyclosporin A, 7.5 micrograms per gram of body weight, injected 12 hours before and then daily after the intragastric gavage of phytohemagglutinin, 100 micrograms per gram body weight, to 14-day-old suckling rats were studied for 12, and 72 hours after the administration of phytohemagglutinin. Results. Four hours after phytohemagglutinin feeding, there was a rapid increase in the intestinal levels of the pro-inflammatory cytokines interleukin-6, interleukin-1-beta, and tumor necrosis factor. Cyclosporin A treatment did not prevent the temporary phytohemagglutinin-induced intestinal disturbance seen at 12 hours. 72 hours after phytohemagglutinin gavage, the cyclosporin A treatment significantly counteracted the phytohemagglutinin-induced gut changes with a decrease in small intestinal growth, a delay in the appearance of adult phenotype enterocytes in the distal small intestine, and total inhibition of the phytohemagglutinin-induced pancreatic development. Additionally, the increase in plasma level of the acute phase protein haptoglobin after phytohemagglutinin feeding was suppressed by cyclosporin A. Conclusions. The results indicate that pro-inflammatory cytokines are involved in the early recruitment of lymphocytes to the gut after phytohemagglutinin challenge, and that the ensuing precocious gut maturation is dependent on activation of the immune system, presumably T-cells, in suckling rats. The next paper is entitled Exposure to Helicobacter pylori Sensitive Siblings 
and persistence of Helicobacter pylori infection in early childhood by Cervantes and colleagues. Cross-sectional studies suggest that Helicobacter pylori may be transmitted between siblings. This study aimed to estimate the effect of an H. pylori-infected sibling on the establishment of persistent H. pylori infection. Materials and methods. The authors used data collected from the Pasitos cohort study, which studied a Texas-Mexico border population from 1998 to 2005. Starting at age six months, H. pylori and factors thought to be associated with H. pylori were ascertained every six months in participants and their younger siblings. Hazard ratios were estimated from proportional hazards regression models with household-dependent modeling. Results. Persistent H. pylori infection in older siblings always preceded persistent infection in younger siblings. After controlling for the mother's H. pylori status, breastfeeding, antibiotic use, and socioeconomic factors, a strong effect was estimated for persistent H. pylori infection in an older sibling on persistent infection in a younger sibling with a hazard ratio of 7.6 and 95% confidence interval of 1.6 to 37, especially when the difference in the age of the siblings was less than or equal to three years. Here the hazard ratio was 16 with 95% confidence interval 2.5 to 112. Conclusions. These results suggest that when siblings are close in age, the older sibling may be an important source of H. pylori transmission for younger siblings. The next article is entitled Development of a Quality of Life Instrument for Pediatric Gastroesophageal Reflux Disease, Qualitative Interviews by Asierno and colleagues. Objectives. Anti-reflux procedures are among the most common surgical procedures performed in children. There is no disease-specific quality of life instrument for gastroesophageal reflux in children. The aim of this study was to identify the relevant domains for developing such an instrument that will be validated in future studies. Patients and methods. The parents of 19 patients aged two months to 18 years, clinically diagnosed with GE reflux disease, were recruited to complete semi-structured interviews. Seven additional patients with adequate verbal skills were also interviewed in person. Patients had been treated medically, 13, or with a surgical anti-reflux procedure, six. The interviews were analyzed using grounded theory. Results. Gastroesophageal reflux disease affects quality of life through the following domains, symptom severity, feeding quality, sleep quality, hygiene, growth and development, social quality, self-image, coping skills, family quality of life, healthcare usage, and impact of anti-reflux surgery. A greater than expected effect on parental quality of life and remarkable use of accommodation were identified. Conclusions. A pediatric reflux-specific instrument cannot rely on quality of life perception alone, but must more broadly address the impact of the disease and the effect of coping skills on the child and his or her family in their activities of daily living and interaction with society. We have identified reproducible domains 
that will serve as the foundation for such an instrument. The next original article is entitled Indications for Upper Gastrointestinal Endoscopy in Children with Dyspepsia by Aguariso and colleagues. The objective of this study was to ascertain the appropriateness of indications for upper gastrointestinal endoscopy in children with dyspepsia. The authors used the RAND University of California at Los Angeles method to investigate the appropriateness of the opinions of a panel of experts. The panel judged 2,304 theoretical patient scenarios defined by a combination of demographic and clinical variables. Descriptive and multivariate logistic regression analyses were performed. Results. The panel rated upper GI endoscopy as appropriate in 27.2% of cases, inappropriate in 14.3%, and of dubious appropriateness in 58.5%. Disagreement emerged in 21% of cases. Upper GI endoscopy was considered increasingly appropriate in the following scenarios. Family history of peptic ulcer and or H. pylori infection, dyspepsia interfering with sleep, dyspepsia interfering with normal daytime activities, patients older than 10 years, symptoms lasting 6 to 11 months, and mild or moderate severity of dyspepsia. Conclusions. Upper GI endoscopy is not appropriate for all children with dyspeptic symptoms, but only for cases with a family history of peptic ulcer and or H. pylori infection, older than 10 years of age, with symptoms persisting for more than six months and severe enough to affect activities of daily living. The first hepatology original article is entitled A Longitudinal Study to Identify Laboratory Predictors of Liver Disease Outcome in Allergial Syndrome by Kameth and Associates. Objectives. Liver disease in allergial syndrome is highly variable, ranging from biochemical abnormalities only to end-stage liver disease. It is not possible to predict whether a child with cholestasis will have improvement or progression of liver disease. The aim of this study was to identify laboratory markers in children younger than five years of age that could predict the ultimate outcome of liver disease in allergial syndrome. Methods. A review of laboratory data from 33 subjects with allergial syndrome was performed. Patients older than 10 years of age were stratified into mild, 22 patients, and severe, 11 patients, by their hepatic outcomes. Non-parametric analysis was performed on longitudinal data from birth to five years to determine association with hepatic outcome. JAGED-1 mutational analysis was performed on available samples. Results. The following variables were statistically different in severe or mild outcome groups. Total bilirubin, conjugated bilirubin, and cholesterol. Further analysis revealed the following cutoff values that differentiated in patients with severe outcome from those with mild outcome. A total bilirubin greater than 6.5 milligrams per deciliter, a conjugated bilirubin greater than 4.5 milligrams per deciliter, and a cholesterol of greater than 520 milligrams per deciliter. Genetic analysis of JAGED1 mutations did not produce any genotype-phenotype correlation. Conclusions. 
total bilirubin greater than 6.5 milligrams per deciliter, conjugated bilirubin greater than 4.5 milligrams per deciliter, and cholesterol greater than 520 milligrams per deciliter in children younger than five years of age are likely to be associated with severe liver disease in later life. These data represent cutoff values below which a child is likely to have a benign outcome and above which more aggressive therapy may be warranted. The next hepatology article is entitled Quality of Life in Children Managed for Extrahepatic Portal Venous Obstruction by Krishna and colleagues from Lucknow, India. This present study evaluated the health-related quality of life in children with extrahepatic portal venous obstruction in patients before and after esophageal variceal eradication and in patients after surgery compared to healthy controls. 112 children with extrahepatic portal venous obstruction and variceal bleeding were divided into three groups, 50 children pre-variceal eradication in group A, 50 children post-variceal eradication in group B, and 12 children after variceal surgery in group C. Group D was made up of 50 healthy controls. Clinical details and investigations were recorded. The Pediatric Quality of Life Inventory, Parent Proxy, Health-Related Quality of Life Questionnaire was used for assessment of quality of life. Results. Compared with controls, patients with extrahepatic portal venous obstruction in groups A, B, and C had lower median quality of life scores in physical, emotional, social, and school functioning health domains. Esophageal variceal eradication had no significant effect on quality of life, where the median total quality of life score pre and post variceal eradication was 87.5 versus 86.3 respectively. Increasing size of spleen, presence of hypersplenism, and growth retardation caused significant reduction in the quality of life score. On multivariate regression analysis, splenic size and growth retardation were found to be independent predictors affecting quality of life. After surgery, a trend towards improvement in physical, psychosocial, and total quality of life scores was present, but it was not significant. Conclusions. Children with extrahepatic portal venous obstruction have a poor quality of life that is not affected by variceal eradication. Splenomegaly and growth retardation significantly affect the health-related quality of life. A trend towards improvement of quality of life scores is observed in the post-surgery group. An original nutrition article is entitled Bovine Colostrum in the Management of Non-Organic Failure to Thrive, a randomized clinical trial by Panahi and colleagues from Tehran. The objective of this study was to evaluate the clinical efficacy of oral bovine colostrum in the management of non-organic failure to thrive. In a randomized clinical trial, 120 children from 1 to 10 years of age of both sexes with mild or moderate non-organic failure to thrive were divided into two groups. The groups were matched by age, sex, weight, and height. The control group received routine treatments for failure to thrive, and the experimental group received supplementary bovine colostrum 
at a dose of 40 milligrams per kilogram per day for a three-month period in addition to their routine treatments. After the initial visit, subsequent visits were scheduled after one, two, and three months of supplementation. For quantitative measurements, the Waterloo 1 Height for Age score and the Gomez Weight for Age score were used. Results. The mean weight for age index in the therapy group, 81.7, was significantly higher than that of the control group, 77.1, at the end of the third month of supplementation with a p-value of 0 .003. Such a difference was not reported based on the height for age index, where height for age was 92.9 in treated patients and 91.7 in controls. By the weight for age, 12 patients, or 20%, who received colostrum were normal at the end of the third month, and this was significantly higher than the two normalized patients in the control group. Conclusions. Bovine colostrum supplementation for a three-month period is a useful method without any side effects in addition to known medical and psychological treatments to increase the weight of children with non-organic failure to thrive. This concludes the podcast of the May issue of JPGN. Other original articles in this issue are Familial Aggregation of Children with Functional GI Disorders, Celiac Disease Seropositivity in Sahawawi Children, Home Management of Acute Diarrhea in Czech Children, Severe Dysphagia in Children with Eosinophilic Esophagitis and Stricture, Development and Testing of a CD-ROM Program for Improving Adolescent Knowledge of Inflammatory Bowel Disease, Supplementation by Fatty Acids Influences the Airway Nitric Oxide and Inflammatory Markers in Cystic Fibrosis, and finally, Orange Juice, but not Apple Juice, Enhances the Ferrous Fumarate Absorption in Small Children. The complete text of these and all articles in the May issue can be accessed on the JPGN website, jpgn.org, or on the NASPGAN website at naspgan.org. The editors of JPGN are David Bransky and Eric Sibley. I'm Judy Sondheimer.